Welcome to the Harvard and Tech Seattle Podcast, Episode 6, and I'm your host, Stephen Harper. Today's guest is Spencer Raskoff. Spencer Raskoff is an entrepreneur and company leader who co-founded Zillow, Hotwire.LA, and Picasso, and who served as Zillow's CEO for a decade. During Spencer's time as CEO, Zillow won dozens of Best Places to Work awards as it grew to over 4,500 employees, $3 billion in revenue, and $20 billion in market capitalization. Prior to Zillow, Spencer was co-founder and VP Corporate Development of Hotwire, which was sold to Expedia for $685 million in 2003. Spencer is now an active angel investor in over 50 startups and is starting new companies through his L.A. startup, Studio 75 and Sunny. Spencer is the host of Office Hours, a podcast featuring candid conversations between prominent executives on leadership, diversity, and inclusion in startups. Before his consumer web career, Spencer worked in investment banking at Goldman Sachs and in private equity at TPG Capital. He is also a member of the Young Presidents Organization. Spencer graduated cum laude from Harvard University. Welcome to the show, Spencer. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, so let's just jump right into it. So what got you interested in the tech? Well, I I guess I came to tech a little bit late in the sense that I wasn't somebody that wrote code when I was in middle school or high school, but that's because I'm ancient. Uh, I'm in my mid 40s. I was Harvard class of 97. And, you know, when I graduated in 97, tech was still so young and so new and the internet was was practically a new technology. And so I did a couple years in investment banking, and then decided to move to San Francisco, where I was working in private equity. And this was 1999. And at that point, you could see tech exploding. And it just seemed in a good way, I guess a year or two later, it exploded in a bad way and, and the first bubble burst. But it was it was just this hotbed of innovation it seemed like an incredibly exciting high growth sector and so i was drawn to it and that's what caused me to leave private equity and investment banking to do my first startup in 1999 how has your experience at harvard influenced you to be who you are now harvard was incredibly influential i mean the first of all i met my wife there so we should start with with that i, I met my wife actually before harvard at the southern californians going to harvard barbecue kind of the summer between senior year of high school and freshman year of college and then at the ice cream social in the yard that's when we really hit it off freshman week and started dating right away and so she's obviously been the most influential person in my life and in my career and i owe that to harvard but more generally you know, it's not just my wife that was an extraordinary peer and colleague of mine at Harvard. It was the overall intellectual environment that was created by my fellow students, which I think is really unique and gave to me a culture of lifelong learning, which has caused me to explore different industries, different parts of tech. It makes me an active angel investor and a better investor just sort of the, the habits around inquiry and intellectualism and growth, which were created by my peers is what's differentiated. So I now see it now as an interviewer at Harvard, where you have all these extraordinary high schoolers doing great things around the world. And then when they're brought together in an environment like Harvard, they suddenly realize that they're not alone, that there are all these other, it's almost like the Harry Potter 
experience. It's like you're a, you're a wizard in your own little house, and then all of a sudden you go to Hogwarts and you see all these other extraordinary people, and that makes that up levels all of you. And that's what I'm most grateful to Harvard for was putting me in that type of environment, which has shaped who I am today. Yeah, just something about being there. It's inspiring. It's like you're inspiring each other all the time just by just being who you are because like excellence is the baseline. So it's like, oh, I didn't even know you could do something just like that. So then you just like take whatever it is that other people are doing and it's like, oh, okay, well, I can take these little habits and just make myself even better. Mm -hmm. But it's just uh, I like that phrase a lot, uh, Stefan, the excellence is a baseline. I think that's I think that's exactly right. I mean, the other phrase I would think I would use is there's a, a culture of approachable intellectualism. Mm -hmm. which is very unique. When you're in high school, if you're smart and interested in the world around you and kind of hardcore and sort of a gunner, you're sort of an outlier, typically, you know, you're maybe there are a couple other fellow overachievers at your high school. If you go to a great high school, maybe there are a couple dozen of them. But when you get to Harvard, all of a sudden, it becomes a safe place where you can debate things in you know, at the at the lunch table in, in one of the houses you can it's it's cool to be smart all of a sudden yes. it's cool to be high achieving <laughs> instead of it being <laughs> nerdy and and you know the the losers who are high achievers all of a sudden it flips and and that's a very unique and special environment yeah you can have those late night discussions either at the starbucks or at kong's or just pretty much anywhere like you said not even just lunch table just pretty much at any time so you can have these sudden bursts of inspiration just want to tell your roommate and be like oh i get it this is pretty much the best place to be a nerd. So what do you remember most about your Harvard experience? Well, you know, as it relates to tech, I'll, I'll date myself and, and listeners will find this amusing. I started there in 1993. We had no email, no internet freshman year. By maybe, maybe late freshman year, you started to get an email account with something called WebPine. And we had to go to the Science Center and go to the basement of the science center, which is where the computer lab was to check email because nobody had internet access in the dorms. We had computers, kind of, sort of, um, like really bad, um, basically word processors, not even really computers. And so it was one of these things I was talking to my wife about it this morning uh, in, you know, when I was telling her I was going to be doing this podcast. And she said, you know, you remember like if it was a cold or snowy day, we'd be like, oh, let's just, it's not worth it. Let's not bother checking email because who wants to trudge all the way across the yard go to the basement of the Science Center, check email, because nobody was going to email us anything anyway because nobody was on the internet. And it wasn't until I think probably junior or maybe senior year that Netscape became popularized as the first web browser and the internet really started happening. So it was, a, it was an odd time. And you know, credit to Harvard today, it is such a more tech forward place. I, I've been fortunate enough to teach a course at Harvard Business School, which also has some undergraduates uh, enrolled in it called Managing Tech Ventures, which is all about how to run a big tech company. I've been involved in the iLab, which is a, a great space for innovation. It's sort of a startup maker space that, that helps create startups across the, the entire Harvard ecosystem. And you know, CS50 is now this, this huge course. The engineering school is amazing. I mean, it wasn't that way 20 years ago, sadly, 20, 25 years ago. Frankly, Stanford was far ahead of Harvard, as were many other schools, University of Illinois and others back then in, in terms of tech. But boy, has Harvard come a long way. And, and now it can credibly say it's, it's one of the best places to be interested in technology and innovation. A specific memory of mine, you know, as I think of my Harvard memories, many of them were extraordinary classes that I took, whether it was Justice with Professor Sandel 
or a, a warfare class with Professor Rosen or a government class on the American presidency with Professor Porter. A, uh, I took an incredible seminar with eight other students on how to build a nuclear bomb, the nuclear scientist, which was amazing. You know, just incredible classroom experiences complemented by extraordinary relationships that I built with my peers who were inspiring, as we've already discussed. Awesome. A nuclear bomb. <laughs> you know, it's not that hard. That was one of my takeaways. If you can get your hands on some enriched uranium, which is the hard part, mm. um, the technology is very well understood and sadly very accessible. And, and again, this was 25 years ago when it was accessible to a couple hundred professors around the world. Now, obviously, these this information's on the internet, and so it's even more widely, you know, readily available. But it's uh, it's not as hard as you think. Reminds me of that scene in Back to the Future where Doc Brown. He got the, it was specifically the, the uranium. That's what got him. Yes. <laughs> yes, that is the hard part. That's, of course, why we see, you know, countries like Israel, allegedly, you know, hacking and destroying Iran's uh, enrichment capabilities, because that's the key, obviously, is it's not the, it's not the technology so much. It's the, the creation of the raw material. But we digress. <laughs> Let's see. So what would you say contributed to your success? You know, all success that I've had has been the result of extraordinary people around me that have made me better and that I've helped make better. So it's I'm, I'm a leader of teams and each of those teams have achieved success, whether it's Zillow or Picasso or Hotwire or .LA or any of these initiatives that I've been involved in. So what's made me successful has been my ability to recruit, retain and motivate and lead great teams that have achieved success. And tying this back to the Harvard experience, Harvard is a community of leaders. You typically enter Harvard having exhibited some leadership and achievement and excellence, but your leadership skills are honed there, either in classroom projects or in extracurriculars or on the sports fields or in all the, you know, the many, many dozens or hundreds of activities that Harvard gives you access to. So that's what has made me successful. And tactically, I would say Harvard also helped me become a better writer, which is a very important aspect of leadership, especially today when companies and teams are distributed. And so much of leadership is about written communication in Slack or email or texting and being a clear, cogent, concise communicator through the written word is critically important to one success and Harvard helped me acquire that skill. So would you say that's an underrated skill that many people gloss over? For sure, for sure. People tend to, in my opinion, place too much emphasis on subject matter expertise and even perhaps technical expertise and this soft skill of, you know, how do you get an organization? How do you get five people? How do you get 50 people? How do you get 500 people? How do you get 500,000 people to all work together a little better? work a little smarter, work a little harder, row together in unison. Like that's really where one's leadership abilities create value. And it's because there's enormous scale from that, right? I mean, if you're a great individual contributor, whether you're a great reporter or a great writer or a great you know software programmer or whatever, that's fine But and good for you. But if you can somehow help a hundred people go from being good to great, well, think about the scale and the leverage advantages of that. And so, yes, communication, leadership, 
written communication. These are all very important skills that are typically underrated because they're hard to measure. It, many listeners have probably worked for managers that they think are good managers and managers they think are bad managers. And it's very hard to put your finger on what makes one good or bad. But I can assure you that if you've worked for a good manager, you were a better employee. And so think about that being magnified across their 10 direct reports and then down a chain to their 10 direct reports. So a good manager can have an impact on 100 or 1,000 people, which is far greater than any incremental improvement that one individual's skills could ever provide. Uh, what is something you're an expert in that is not related to work? Hmm, that's a good question. What am I an expert in that I'm not, it's not related to work. I'm a very good chess player. I'm not sure I'm an expert. I used to be really? an expert when I was okay. little. Um, when I was... Uh, <laughs> When I was 12, I was the fourth best chess player in the country and under 12, I was the captain of my chess team that won multiple high school and, and middle school or I should say middle school national championships. So I, I was an excellent chess player. Now I'm a very good chess player. What else am I excellent at? I'm a pretty good parent, I think. I don't know if that counts. It's probably not what you're looking for. <laughs> you know, I don't know. That's a good question. So like if you had to give a TED talk like right now, something along those lines, like what, what would it be? I mean, I've written, I've written one book and I'm writing another. So my first book was called Zillow Talk and it was about, it was sort of like a Freakonomics for real estate. So mm -hmm. it was because I ran Zillow for 15 years, I have a great purview of the real estate industry. And so Zillow Talk was focused on teasing out interesting insights from the real estate industry that might've been overlooked. My current book is about leadership and management and how to inspire great results from organizations and that is something I think I'm quite expert at. I've, you know, I've run many large organizations. I've mm -hmm. created a H, you know, the HBS course on how to run large tech companies with another great professor that created it with me. And that's what the current book that I'm working on is about. So those are, those are two things that I'm definitely expert on. So a lot of what it sounds like is it, it comes down to writing. So how it is it that you cultivated your writing? I know you took classes at Harvard, but just really hone it and get it better. What is it that you do? So it started before Harvard. It started before Harvard. I was, I was very, I spent a lot of time on high school newspaper. I was the editor in chief of my high school paper, which was a very serious paper, like kind of the quality of a, of a good national or regional newspaper. And I learned how to be a great writer and editor through my involvement there. And then, uh, and I just had great teachers in high school and also at Harvard that made me a much better writer. I, I, you know, obviously writing academic papers or writing newspaper articles is a very different form of communication than writing, um, you know, missives on Slack to your employees, for example. <laughs> and so uh, you have to adjust your, um, adjust your message to fit the medium. But the, the overarching structure and tenets are the same. It's about trying to figure out what the high level objective that you're trying to communicate is, providing um, more detail and then providing evidence to support it and wrapping up with a good conclusion that ties back to the beginning. That's the same, whether you're giving a speech, you're giving a um, you know, stand up comedy monologue or you're writing an all hands memo to your 500 employees at your startup. And um, so, so that's something I'm always working to improve. And as, as we've discussed, I think it's a critical skill for leaders and frequently overlooked. Mm -hmm. See, how do you choose what to say yes to? 
Um, well, so I retired as CEO of Zillow two years ago after 15 years, and all of a sudden my calendar was empty. It was a very odd <laughs> feeling, um, you know, when you're running a, a big, you know, it was 5,000 employee company for a long, well, it started as a startup and then it became over, over 15 years, a 5,000 employee company. And then the next day my calendar was empty. And so that was an odd feeling. And I had to ask myself your question, how do I decide what to say yes to? The first thing I did was I called Harvard actually. And uh, I called the provost office and said, I would love to teach a course. And the, uh, the person in the provost office said, well, what are you, what are you good at? Basically asked me the question that you asked and said, you know, what, what can you teach? And I said, I'm good at running tech companies. And um, they said, great. And so I created this course at HBS and that was a, a ton of fun. What I do now is I'm an active angel investor. So I have a, a venture firm called 75 and Sunny Ventures, which is an ode to the, the weather here in Los Angeles, which I, you know, when I moved from Seattle, I lived in Seattle for almost 20 years and I moved to LA and I named my venture firm 75 and Sunny. So I love Seattle, but you know, advantage LA when it comes to weather. Um, but anyway, so I'm an active angel investor through 75 and Sunny. I'm starting companies through 75 and Sunny. I started two companies last year, one called .LA, which is a news site that covers LA tech. Seattle listeners will be familiar with GeekWire. And um, .LA is basically the GeekWire of Los Angeles. In fact, GeekWire mm -hmm. is an investor in .LA. And then I started another company called Picasso, which is a real estate company that lets you buy a portion of a second home. And then my startup studio, 75 and Sunny Labs, is starting another two startups this year in 2021. So I'm... Super involved in lots of startups. And then all the way at the other end of the spectrum, at the late stage, I have a family of SPACs or special purpose acquisition companies that are taking private companies public. And um, that's called Supernova, that family of SPACs. The first deal that we're doing is a company called OfferPad. And so we're taking OfferPad public for about $3 billion. So hmm. today I have a very diverse portfolio from the very early stage where I'm writing small angel checks to the very late stage where I'm taking multi-billion dollar private companies public. And to succinctly answer your question of how do I decide what to say yes to, it's primarily things I find interesting at this point. I mean, it's I'm, for, I'm in a fortunate position where I can prioritize my time based on my interest. And um, I, I want to associate myself with interesting founders and executives that are solving challenging problems that I'm personally connected to. And really every company that I've invested in or every founder that I coach or every startup that I'm involved in one way or the other is just a, a category or a topic or a problem that I'm passionate about. Yeah. And considering you're involved with a lot of different companies and it sounds like you have a lot of different passions. <laughs> I do. I do. And that, that <laughs> kind of ties back to the Harvard conversation at the beginning, right? It's like, you know, I, I have diverse interests. I'm, I'm a very active angel investor in a space startup called Relativity Space. And I'm also involved in news media through .LA. And I'm also an investor in uh, something called Invisible Universe, which is a, a creator economy company. I mean, these are very diverse companies doing different things. And where does that come from? It comes from that culture of lifelong learning. Uh, you know, I mean, NFTs, just as a, as a silly example, they're all the rage right now. Mm -hmm. Everyone, it's all anyone can talk about. And I'm going deep on NFTs because I just, I want to understand what they are and, and how they work. And that culture of lifelong learning and culture of lifelong teaching is, I, I trace that to Harvard. I, I, for example, I have two podcasts. One is called Office Hours, sort of like this one where I interview um, a, a fellow founder or tech executive. 
that to me is a way that I learn is by talking with, with other people that are doing cool stuff. And then I have another podcast called dad. I have a question where my son asks mm -hmm. me a question like what is an NFT or what is Bitcoin or um, you know, how do SPACs work or what's inflation or how do banks make money? And you know, if you can explain something to a 10 year old, then you understand it pretty well yourself. And so for me, that's a way for me to learn enough about a topic that I can translate that to a kid. And that is also that's you know, perfect exhibit A in terms of a culture of lifelong learning and teaching, which I credit Harvard for. So going back to your to your kid, so this reminds me of like uh, Richard Feynman. So he says like if he can't explain like a really complicated problem in a freshman seminar, a freshman class, and he says no, you don't really know it. Mm -hmm. So it so it sounds like that's you're trying to uncomplicate something by explaining it to your ten year old. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, I can't tell you how many adults have quietly told me like, I love you. I love, I love your other podcast, but I actually love the podcast with your son because I learned, you know, what is inflation and I learned, uh, you know, uh, what is a mortgage? Like these things that I kind of sort of knew, you know, like I, I kind of <laughs> understand, but not really, but like now I get it. And so, you know, I think it's, it's teaching adults also and teaching me uh, while I teach him. So let's see. See, so you've been involved with Hotwire, Zillow, .LA, Picasso. So, what's your process for, you know, coming up with these ideas or like a, pretty much that's it. So, just like, what's the process behind it? It's like, oh, this is something I want to pursue. How do I make a company around it? Or is there already a company there? Or do I just? It's a that's a good question. Um, it's it sort of depends on the situation. You know, in the case of Zillow, the ideation was myself and two other folks, the three of us left Expedia and we were brainstorming business ideas and thinking about challenges that we had in our life. And one challenge that we all had was shopping for a home. And we were surprised that in 2005, you know, 10 years into the internet's life, it was still such a bad search experience. They were still, you know, there was really no great real estate website that empowered the consumer and provided information transparency. So that was a kind of your standard, like a couple people in a room for a couple months in front of a whiteboard thinking about business ideas. Um, in the case of Dot .LA, uh, which I started with Sam Adams, who's another Harvard alum, um, probably class of, I don't know, 2010 or something in that ballpark. Um, uh, in that case, I had this model in GeekWire in Seattle where I saw GeekWire working and I saw what an important contributor it was to the Seattle tech scene. And I wanted to create that in Los Angeles. And so I started going through my network to try to find a co-founder to work on this with me. And I found Sam, who's been a great CEO for .LA. Uh, so there was no real ideation phase. It was just like, I had the idea. I went out and recruited a co-founder to be the CEO. In the case of Picasso, uh, it was a lot more like the Zillow example, where my co-founder at Picasso, Austin Allison, he and I worked together at Zillow. Um, I always thought incredibly highly of him. And when we both left Zillow together about two years ago, we started working on business ideas and we quickly realized that one of the things, one of the passions that we both shared was the joys of second home ownership. The fact that we had both been fortunate enough to be able to afford second homes. He had a home in Tahoe and I had a home in Napa Valley. And for both of us, it was such an important part of our life and of our families and our friends 
experience. And when I look around my house, for example, and I look at all the photos on the walls of my family, almost all of them are taken at a second home. You know, they're not mostly taken at my primary home. And there's a reason for that because that's where a lot of memories are formed. And so we started discussing, gosh, wouldn't it be amazing if we could somehow democratize access to second home ownership and make it available, not just to the 1%, but you know, to, to most Americans or to many Americans or many people around the world. And the way to do that is through co-ownership, because if it, it probably doesn't make sense for most people, either they can't afford it or they, they don't want to buy all of a second home. And why should they? They're not going to use it all the time. But if you can buy an eighth of a home in... Mount Baker or an eighth of a home in Whistler or an eighth of a home in Sun Valley uh, or a quarter of a home in you know, Santa Barbara or Palm Springs, well, all of a sudden the economics start to make a lot more sense. And so that's how Austin and I happened upon the idea for Picasso was through that ideation of starting with what we're patroned about and then trying to solve a really big problem together. So because you've had so many different companies, which is like from small to like really large, like say Zillow and LA. So uh, what is the strategy for motivating people to like, continue on and doing their work? Because I'm sure it's different from like a small group as opposed to like a large group. Um, it's, it's more similar than different. The similarity is that people want to be connected to a higher mission. I remember I, I once had Vicente Fox, who, when he was president of Mexico, he came and, and spoke at Zillow. We had a great speaker series that I created there. And, and he came and talked to our employees. And he used this expression, which is a little bit offensive, but I'll, I'll, I'll share it anyway. <laughs> he, said, he said, even the bricklayer wants to know that he's building a cathedral. And that really resonated with me. It's like, look, if you're a bricklayer, you know, you're showing up every work every day and it's not, it's not sexy work. It's kind of a pain in the neck to lay bricks. But if you feel that you're part of building a cathedral, well, then, oh my gosh, you're not just a bricklayer. You're creating something magnificent that can inspire you know, generations for thousands of years. And it's, it's that way with companies too. You know, if you're a software developer typing code, if you're a customer service representative dealing with credit card cancellation issues, if you're a uh, salesperson selling advertising for a website, you know, you want to feel like you're part of something bigger and something more important. So for example, at Picasso, we talk a lot about our mission. Uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm here in my home, whoops, I'm here in my home office and um, you know, every, every employee has its mission statement next to them. So hmm. the Picasso mission is enrich lives by making second home ownership possible and more enjoyable and enjoyable for more people. So we are actively trying to help millions of people lead a more enriched life by having access to second home ownership. That's pretty cool. That's pretty lofty. You know, at, at, at Zillow, we had an equally lofty goal. We were trying to create information transparency, empower consumers. You know, people get up in the morning uh, to, to go do stuff like that. They don't get up in the morning to be a, a code monkey that's just you know jamming away on a keyboard, you know, writing code or fixing bugs or whatever. So that's common across five employees, five hundred employees, five thousand employees. Um, and uh, actually, this is a topic I explore a lot in office hours in, in my interviews with with CEOs. I asked the same question of Sachin Adela at Microsoft, and he said something similar. I remember I asked Mike Corbat, the CEO of Citigroup, who has a million employees, um, and he said kind of the same thing. It's like, if you're Citigroup and you're trying to motivate your employees worldwide, a million people, you've got some bank teller in Nairobi at the city branch, and you've got some investment banker in Hong Kong 
you know, and one makes, you know, $10 an hour and one makes $10 million a year. How do you motivate them across a million person organization? It's, it's the same thing. You're, you're trying to convince them and it helps if you believe it to be true. Um, it makes you more credible. <laughs> you're trying to convince them that the work that you're doing is enabling other great things to occur. So if your city, you know, by lending money to small businesses or extending credit to consumers, they're going to go off and do great things. They're going to go and, and create companies and, and create jobs and innovation. They're, you know, the, the credit that you're extending to consumers is going to allow them to lead in more rich lives. Like that's motivating. That's cool. Uh, okay. Like I get it. I'm going to be a customer service rep in Bangalore and, you know, deal with credit card issues, but like, at least I'm, at least I exist for some cool reason. So that's the way to inspire people and motivate people to tie them to a bigger cause. I'm going to think on that one. Like that's, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah. I mean, look, uh, listeners should think about if they feel their company is, you know, is, is part of that. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a quick example, Stephen. So um, I, uh, I, I talked, I, I was talking to a friend who had a startup. It was called work pop, which sold to cornerstone on demand. It was an LA tech company and work pop was a scheduling software for people that work in the fast food industry. So, you know, if you're a, if you're a, an hourly employee at McDonald's or Burger King, you basically log onto this website and it tells you what shift you're working. And so it's like a B2B SaaS company for restaurant franchisees to manage their, um, you know, their, their hourly workers, not particularly sexy software. And I, I asked him this question of like, you know, how do you motivate employees? What to, and, and he's like, Oh my gosh, my company is amazing. It is so cool. Like we allow these, these, uh, these users of our software to lead more enriched lives because imagine you're a, you know, you're an employee at McDonald's and you're um, juggling your kids and you're taking care of your parents and the, the freedom and advantages that they have of being able to have this transparency so that they can manage their schedule and communicate with their employer. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, he, he was describing it as if it was changing the world. Like it's, you know, we're curing cancer here. And he truly believed it with passion and convinced me by the end of that conversation. And I'm thinking like, wow, all right. If I'm like a software engineer at this company, all of a sudden I'm not just working at some random B2B SaaS company that sells software to restaurants. Like, no, I'm actually part of something bigger. And so it, you know, it is possible whether you're in financial services, which is kind of a mercenary culture typically, and you're at Citigroup or Goldman Sachs. It's also possible at a B2B SaaS startup, which is typically kind of, you know, perhaps kind of dull and mundane. And it's possible if you're at a consumer media startup, um, uh, you know, or, or a, a consumer tech company. So if you're a good leader and you truly believe in the mission, you can, you can uh, motivate employees through this across any industry, really. One of my questions I have here is like, what lessons would you like to share with the audience? But it seems like there's quite a few lessons that you have shared, but perhaps there's a lesson that you didn't get to touch upon that you would like to share with the rest of the audience. Sure. I, I mean, I'd say two things on, on this. I'd say the, the key to lifelong success is to surround yourself with great people that make you better. And, mm. um, uh, you know, I've always done that. And I've always tried to make sure that I'm learning from those around me, whether I report to them or they report to me. Um, secondly, if you're a listener and you're thinking, should I stay at my job? You know, am I, am I at the right place or, or what's next in my career? The rubric that I've always assessed that or, or answered that question through has been to think about, am I learning? Am I 
appreciated at this company? Am I fairly compensated? And, um, you know, am I, am I challenged? And, you know, if you're not, if, if those things aren't true, if you don't feel appreciated or you, you can have one or two of those off kilter for a little while, like you can maybe feel not challenged for three, six months, but as long as you feel appreciated and, um, you know, fairly compensated, then maybe you can stick around. You can, you know, one or two of these three or four things can be off kilter for a short period of time. But if you wake up one day and several of these things are, are have been off for a little while, then it's probably time to, to look for, you know, to move your career in a different direction. And we can tie this back to the beginning of the conversation when you asked one of the greatest gifts that Harvard gave me was my lifelong relationship with my wife, also class of 97. And she has played that role for me in every career junction. And I recommend to you and to listeners that you have someone in your life that plays that role, that is a career mirror that can say, you know what, Spencer, you seem unhappy here. You know, I, I, I can tell you might not even realize it, but I can tell that you're not motivated at this job, or I can tell that, you know, you're not, you're stagnating or you're not learning or growing anymore. So you want somebody, whether it's a parent, spouse, friend, family member, whatever, um, uh, that is close enough to you, but is not, uh, not in your day-to-day work environment. I don't think it can really be a work colleague. I mean, perhaps it could be, but in my experience, it hasn't been. Um, and that career mirror can help you with those junctions, those important decision points in life. Going a little bit on that, but going back to say mentors or mentees. So Mm -hmm. how would somebody go about with uh, finding people who is like a mentor or who do you say yes to as far as someone asking you is like, oh, can I be your mentee? Uh, I'm glad you asked this question. So this is an important topic and I've blogged a little bit about this. I think if you Google, you know, Spencer Raskoff, mentorship or something, you'll probably find a couple articles I've written on this. I I have a little bit of an unconventional point of view on this. I think in 2021, especially in this remote world, it's a little anachronistic to think that you're going to have a formal mentor, like a proper person that's going to put you under their wing and, you know, be there with you for the next 10 or 20 years of your career. And instead you have to hack mentorship. And what hacking mentorship means is finding people who you might not even ever meet who can give you great career advice. So I hope I'm a mentor to many listeners out there. I, and, and I hope that they listen to my podcast or they read what I write on LinkedIn or on my websites and they watch stuff that I, you know, speeches that I give on YouTube and that they feel some connection to me and they feel that I've been helpful in their career. I've, I've written about Sachin Adela and Jeff Weiner as two examples who I feel they are mentors to me. Now, what do I mean by that? I know both of them. You know, I, I email them occasionally, but they're not. I'm not close with them. I don't text them. I don't. You know, I I see them very, very infrequently. They're not. They're not close friends of mine, and they they certainly don't think of themselves as mentors to me. But I think that of them as mentors to me. Why? Because when Jeff was running LinkedIn, I would stalk him. You know, everything he said publicly, every blog post he wrote, every tweet he fired off, I would consume and tie to my life and my decisions. You know, I would, I'd read every book that either of them wrote. It said, watched everything such as put on YouTube, et cetera. And um, they played very, they still play very important mentorship roles to me, even though, you know, we're not, they don't know it. So uh, hacking mentorship, I think is, is 
the way that we have to do it in this in this new era. Um, it's you know it's very difficult to get somebody to say yes, I will be your mentor. I mean that's a little bit that's 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 a heavy lift. Um, and so instead, I think you have to be kind of creative. The other the other thing I've written about is the importance of mentorship being a two-way street. I know I just wrote this recently. I feel like maybe two, three weeks ago um, on either on .LA or on LinkedIn. I forget where. And what I talked about in this post is about how a good mentorship is one in which the mentor learns as much from the mentee as the other way around. And I gave a couple examples where um, I have mentored people and yet I have grown from them. So you as a, a potential mentee, you have to think about wh what do I have to offer? How can I teach a mentor? And you might, you know, listeners might be thinking like, look, I'm 22. What is he talking about? How can I, you know, what could I teach to some, you know, 40 year old that's advanced in her or his career? And um, the answer is plenty. And it might be something as simple as I am 22. So I know what other people in my cohort you know, how they think and what motivates them and what they're interested in and what technologies they're using. And I can help teach this, you know, ancient person in his mid forties like me, um, you know, a lot about where things are and where they're going. And, um, you know, that again, I, if you track down this blog post, I, I gave a lot of great examples mm -hmm. of people that uh, mentees of mine that have taught me as much as I've taught them. Great. Uh, so what do you have planned for the future? <sighs> still trying to figure it out. I mean, you know, I guess for now more of the same. So investing at the very early stage, starting companies, and then taking late stage companies public, the common theme across all of those things that I do now is coaching, coaching, mentorship, uh, trying to help other people and their organizations succeed without running them. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I've already, I don't think I will run another large organization again. I think I'm at this stage of my career where I'd rather be even more highly leveraged. You know, if I can help, um, if I can help uh, um, Brian Baer at OfferPad with 500 employees and Tim Ellis at Relativity Space with 500 employees and um, uh, Isa Watson at Squad with, you know, she has, I don't know, 10 employees. If I can, through mentorship and coaching and counseling, help them help their organization succeed, well, that's even more highly leveraged than what we've been talking about, about being a good leader. Um, and so through books, blog, blog posts, podcasts, and mentoring and coaching the companies that I invested in, the companies that I start, I hope to have a very large impact across technology and growth without actually running organizations directly. So it's like you're, you want to be a coach's coach. So. Yeah, yeah I, th I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I've just finished a great book called Trillion Dollar Coach about Bill Campbell, right? Um, who's uh, you know who has probably impacted the technology industry more than you know more than almost any other person, and yet most of you have never heard of him. He's a fascinating character. And that you know <laughs> that is a pretty good. That's a yeah. If they can write that about me at the end of my life, as they've written that about him at the end of his, I'll be pretty happy. And he, you know, that's uh, that's that's a pretty neat model. I'm inspired by that. Because I, I listened to the interview of Eric Schmidt talking about him, and it's I don't understand how he did it, but mm -hmm. it's it's really really fascinating. Where was I? Haven't heard that interview. I've, I'm reading. I've, I've done almost done with that book, but do you know where you read that or you heard that? It was a uh, the Tim Ferriss podcast. Ah, okay, cool. I will check that out. Pretty funny, just 
Google and Apple is like, how, how, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> really funny stuff. Let's see. So how can people find you? I'm probably the easiest person to find on the internet. <laughs> so you can tweet at me at Spencer Raskoff. Um, you can. Um, that's how we got it. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. Uh, you can email me um, uh, Spencer at 75andsunny.vc. Um, you can go to spencerraskoff.com um, or hopefully by the time this this gets posted, 75 and Sunny, uh, the 75 and Sunny website will be up as well and there'll be ways to contact me there. So I'm, I'm pretty accessible um, and, uh, you know, feel free to reach out. Great. So, yeah, just taking a step back. So when it comes to starting a company, like who is the first hire that you make? Well, the most important decision when starting a company is who your co-founder will be um, and or co-founder or co-founders. And it's important for those people to complement each other and have different skill, diverse skill sets. So in the case of Supernova, for example, which is my family of SPACs, I've brought together three different worlds, tech operating experience that I provide, Wall Street investing experience that uh, one of my colleagues provides from having run a big hedge fund and private equity uh, deal experience from two other colleagues. And the combination of those three make for a great SPAC team. So we've got uh, a really important diversity of, of skill sets. In, the, in every company that I can think of, it's been like that. So at Picasso, for example, Austin has great sales strategy and, and um, business experience. We brought on Divec, who uh, joined us from Zillow and Dot Loop, which was Austin's prior startup. He's an incredible uh, CTO. We brought on Doug Anderson, who's an incredible head of product, who used to work with me at Hotwire. We brought on Whitney, who came from Zillow, who's an incredible head of marketing. So it's about assembling a diverse team, ideally racially and ethnically and, and gender diverse, but uh, at a minimum, um, diverse skill sets, which is which is just as important and sometimes overlooked. It's also very important that your first couple hires carry the create and then carry and propagate the culture that you want the company to have because culture is like quick drying cement and the first 10 or so employees will create that culture and it'll be very difficult to change it down the road we see this with so many other companies like uber as sort of the obvious example or we work as another example where the bro shoot from the hip aggressive, overly aggressive culture of those companies almost imploded them. And they've both survived, you know, only through radical open heart surgery that were, was uh, you know, executed by a new management team. So you got to get the culture right at the very beginning and bring the right people in that can help create that culture. And the other, the other thing to consider in startups is just how quickly needs change as companies grow. So it's important for managers and executives to think about everyone in their company. They want to make sure that people in their company are in the right role for the challenges of the next six months ahead rather than the prior six months behind. So think about a company with, you know, whatever, 50, you know, 550, 500 employees, doesn't matter. Everyone that shows up to work the, that day, why are they there? Well, they're there because they worked there yesterday. And so they showed up today and like the reason they worked there yesterday is because they were hired some period of time ago when the the situation was a little bit different. So today, if you were rehiring, would you rehire all of those people for the challenges ahead? 
And in a static company that's not growing very quickly, the answer is almost always yes. Like, of course, if somebody was great six months ago, of course, they're going to be great today and six months from now. But in a high growth company, that's not necessarily the case. And so, um, you know, there are going to be lots of people that have to have their roles changed or be churned out of an organization in a high growth environment because perhaps they were good before, but they're not right for what lies ahead today. Um, I can think of a couple of examples. Um, this happens a lot in engineering as companies grow. So for example, you know, two person startup hires a, a hotshot software engineer who's a great developer and, and she or he comes on board. And then you hire three more engineers and five more, and then you've got an outside vendor and all of a sudden there are 20 engineers and you wake up one day, nine months later, and that hotshot engineer that you hired is all of a sudden an engineering manager he or she is no longer writing code, no longer even reviewing code. They're just managing 25 other engineers. Mm -hmm. They might not be any good at that. They also might not want to do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you, if you aren't very deliberate and intentional about assessing whether that is the right org and the right person in that role, you can end up with a really corrosive situation. And so, um, just these, these high, this happens in sales as well, too. I mean, you hire a salesperson, all of a sudden they're a sales manager and, you know, boom, six months later, they may be a terrible sales manager, but a great salesperson, but all of a sudden they're running a, a part of the sales org as a manager. So anyway, these high growth companies have to be very deliberate about this type of thing uh, to ensure that they've got the right people in the right roles. And it can be hard, by the way, it can be very hard in particular, because when you start, you frequently hire from your network. And so you hire a lot of friends mm -hmm. so that that engineering manager who, you know, maybe she or he was Will, you know, work with you at the last company and I'll, you're like, oh God, I don't want to push them out. They're great. It's like, okay, well maybe, but would you hire that person today for this role? Maybe there's some other role you should find for them, but that can be among the hardest things at these, these high growth startups. Yeah. That sounds really difficult. <laughs> That's what management is though. Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy, but, but it's important. Thanks to Spencer for coming out to the show. You can find us by email, LinkedIn, or Facebook at Harvard and Tech Seattle. Links will be in the show notes.